0: BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is
1: the Redbox podcast. Now, where are you listening to the podcast? Are you outside the UK? We know there are lots of you. We can see in the magic numbers. But we're looking for international listeners to come on Time's Radio and play our hugely popular quiz, Can You Get to Number 10? So, frankly, even if you're in the UK... Always lovely to speak to you. So if you want to come on and do our quiz, it's just 10 general knowledge questions, loosely connected, 10 cabinet jobs. Email me now with your details, matt.jurley at times.radio, and we'll hopefully get you on the radio very soon. Right, coming up on the podcast today, an absolute treat. He's back. Regular listeners to the podcast will remember Sam Coates, former Deputy Political Editor of the Times and General Troublemaker. Five years ago this week, Boris Johnson, Pulled out of the Tory leadership contest after being knifed in the back by Michael Gove. Prompting Sam Coates to appear on live television looking agog uh, behind Norman Smith on the BBC News Channel. Well, Sam Coates joins me to take a trip down memory lane, to recall what happened five years ago, and to update us on the state of the hole in his trousers. That is coming up. But first is our columnist panel. It should be Night at the Marriott, but James Marriott is away. I think his primary school class is being uh, told to self-isolate. So instead, it's John Stevens from the Daily Mail joining India Night. Now, let's talk about, because I know you touched on your your, uh, column, India, at the weekend and obviously there's been some developments on this since, Uh, Britney Spears and uh, the judge has ruled that denying her her request to remove her father as her conservator. It's such an incredible story, isn't it? It's not just a sort of showbiz story, but she remains one of the most famous people in the world, hugely successful uh, pop singer, you you know, cultural icon, and yet has no control over her own life, India. It's
3: absolutely extraordinary, the story, and it's sort of, Medieval in, in its in its at its core, really. I mean, I find it completely fascinating, really horrifying, and uh, really distressing. And the idea that a woman who is about to be forty can't be in control of her own body, her own reproduction, her own money—you know, she's funding all of this. I mean, one of the extraordinary things about her testimony last week is that, of course, she's paying for her law, her not very good. Uh, it seems, lawyers that have been appointed by the uh, people in charge of her. She's also paying for the other side. I mean, she it's like she can't win. She said at one point to the judge, I thought very moving, she said, oh, I could. I wish I could stay on the phone to you all day because the moment I come off the phone, I'm told that everything is impossible and I must do as I'm told and there is no hope. So, yeah, it's a bananas story. And, and I'm very sad that uh, uh, about this most recent legal decision, but I understand that it's going to run and run and run and run and run for years it looks like.
1: Um, he's amazing. Have you been following this closely, John? I have. Usually when I come on like this sort of programme, it's
4: subject like football which I know barely anything about but I am a Britney Spears fan so on this one we're on slightly more home territory Um, and I actually saw Britney Spears in 2018 in Scarborough and she's now said that that's all she didn't want to perform she didn't want to do it she was forced against her will and then later when they tried to get her to do a residency at Las Vegas when she objected in rehearsals they put her into rehab, they changed what drugs she was on. And so it is just a totally harrowing story. And it does seem slightly strange that she hasn't managed to be able to get rid of her father as the conservator. And as India says, you know, she's been paying for everyone's legal fees in this. He's been paying her father a $16,000 fee a month to be the conservator of her. And he also has been getting a cut of the like bit of ticket and merchandise sales of the tours that she's been saying that she's been forced to go on. So it just seems that a lot of what's happened in her life hasn't been of interest of Britney Spears. It's just been the interest of everyone mm. else around her.
1: And I suppose it's, it's one of those reminders. Uh, I mean, particularly because she was so young, which uh, is like a Disney. Um, what were they called like the Mickey Mickey Mouse a Mickey Mouse, Mouse- um and 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 it seemed so incredibly successful and enjoyed you know apparently all of the 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 trappings of fame and fortune and uh, and all of that, but actually utterly miserable for large parts of that india
3: it's a really interesting story about fame actually because as as she said herself again in her testimony last week, you know the public perception is always that if you are selling out Vegas. And you look great and your records go to number one, you are automatically happy and automatically grateful and automatically not really allowed to complain, you know, because it looks a bit whingy. So she heroically has n- not complained um, very volubly until recently, but really she's a sort of chattel, I mean, she's a slave. It's, it's mind-blowingly weird. And the thing was, because I was reading something about how
1: um, there is a similar thing in, in this country. It's called a deputyship, I think, rather than a conservatorship. But it's that's for sort of people who lack mental capacity. It's, you know, serious brain injuries, dementia, severe learning disabilities. Uh, I, I'm just not sure if this, this this case would happen in the UK, would it, John? No, and you look at how restrictive
4: this conservative shit is, you know she said in that testimony last week in that court in l a about how she 's being stopped from getting pregnant she 's been stopped from getting married, and um, for someone to have such control on their life that they 're not free at all, yet you know they 're completely functioning she 's been able to tour the world she 's kind of at the top of her game, a brilliant performer. And that doesn't necessarily mean that everything else in your life is fine, but it does seem ridiculous that she has so controlled that just basic things she's not being able to do.
1: And uh, you, you, what you were saying about the sort of nature of fame in you is that um, it's one of the, you know, I suppose inevitably in most areas of life, things have turned out not to be quite what they seemed, whether it's the church or the media or politics or, or mm-hmm. whatever. Um, and uh, so many people who've been through this sort of fame machine end up having utterly miserable lives and I remember I was just to think it was I remember listening to someone being interviewed it was a singer being interviewed the other day I think on I think it might have been on Virgin one of our sister stations but talking about how they'd sort of backed away for like the record company said we can turn you into you know the next Britney Spears or whatever mm. and they backed away from it and said no I'm quite happy just releasing you know albums and doing my thing but being able to walk down the street and not being packed and all of that and it's this sort of extraordinary sort of turnaround in events that, that um, people don't, you know, they've, maybe they've seen what happens and people don't want fame in the same way.
3: Yes, I think there's been a change in that. You know, the idea that, I don't know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, you know, the idea that, that, that you became you became famous and you wanted to go on top of the pubs and you wanted everybody to whoop and clap you and follow you down the street and turn up outside your mum's house is now a really frightening idea, I think, possibly because of the impact of social media, which always sort of comes in, to all of these things, but I, I think I think that's the sane approach now. You know, to kind of quietly plough your furrow, do well, be successful, have people who love you come to your concerts, but really not stick your head out above the parapet very much beyond that, because the whole thing just becomes suffocating.
1: Clearly, and we've even seen John. You know, who'd even become a, the chief medical officer, John? Um, as we've seen this week, uh, the the. the you know, the abuse that even Chris Whitty's get. I mean, that's certainly not where well, he, you know, it's not like he was a uh, Mickey Mouse uh as a child or or indeed, you know, release of uh, pop hits. Um, but it's just, you know, why would anyone want to want to go into the public eye?
4: Well, that is the problem. And you look at how young Britney Spears was when she was parted out of her small town in Louisiana and taken to New York. And I think she was staying in new york with someone who wasn't even one of her family members and then in one of the documents i think it's the new york times documentary talks about when she came back to louisiana when she was quite young but she had all this money and she just went driving through the town handing out hundred dollar bill notes to everyone it's a completely ridiculous life that she's had and she's just not had people around her that have her best interest at heart as you say you know Chris Whitty obviously didn't get into being the CMO for the fame. You know, it's just a very difficult task that he's kind of tread, And so, yeah, I think there is a problem there. I think they're very different issue. There is obviously a
1: problem that people in public eye are facing a lot of pressure. Yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, it's extraordinary. It's, well, we, yeah, this Britney Spears thing is clearly going to run and run, but it's just, yeah, it's just a very grim uh, story. Um, let's move on and talk a uh, complete change of tack. This. Let's talk about the furlough scheme. So, uh, in fact, some figures have just come out in the last uh, half an hour or so, saying that more than a million workers came off the fur- or off furlough in the four weeks between the end of April and the end of May, uh, which obviously coincided with the start of restrictions being lifted, non-essential uh, retail, shops, restaurants, that sort of thing. Uh, it shows that 2.4 million moved off the scheme between the end of February and the end of May, uh, but two and up, 2.4 million remain furloughed or flexi-furloughed. 2.4 million is still a hell of a lot. I mean, it's down from a peak of nearly 9 million. And I'm just interested in where um, where, where politics goes uh, on this, John. The next time a bad thing happens, the government can't just say, well, we'll let nature take take its course, you know, uh, unemployment benefits there. You know, that's just the way it is. Um, the precedent that Rishi Sunak has set for the future is is going to be really strong, isn't it?
4: Yeah, and I think the government really do see the risk here on the furlough scheme that it could lead to mass unemployment. I think that's why you've got these quotes out this morning from Richard Sunak saying that the scheme is naturally working down as the economy reopens and showing these figures, showing that the number of people on furlough was halved in the last three months. But, you know, at the moment, we're seeing employers having to contribute 10 percent this month and it will go up to 20 percent before the scheme totally closes in the end of September. So they are gradually taking it so we don't have a massive cliff edge. But I think it is going to be tricky. You come to September, you've got stuff like the Universal Credit, £20 a week up if they're getting rid of that as well. But I think that is going to be the pressure point. If you suddenly see unemployment numbers ticking up, you're taking away the extra benefits. I think that's when you've got a problem point for the government. It's not right now. I think at the moment, they are be able to gradually do things. But then I think that's when you've got the problem.
1: What do you think, India? Is it? I mean, are we all are we all just massive, gov- you know, big state interventionists now?
3: I think the problem is that uh, we keep being told um, that things are going back to normal very, very imminently, um, and that isn't really true. Um, and if you tell people that the world as they knew it is about to reappear and that they can go about their business uh, in it as they did a couple of years ago, you are setting yourself up for an almighty fall. And the people I'm really concerned about are not so much um, reasonably versatile, flexible uh, workers in sectors that with very kind of high turnover, like hospitality, although I do worry about people who work in hospitality. But I worry more about people doing very skilled jobs that they've been doing for a very long time, uh, Really, not being able to work again. And in fact, I think we're
1: going uh, to—that's one of the things we're going to be talking about next with uh, um, someone from the Resolution Foundation about exactly that, because of the the risk of uh, older workers, um, Mm -hmm. you know, as a a furlough scheme. Because you're right—if you're young and you're flexible and you can, you know, you happily jump from one sector to another, Mm -hmm. then you'll probably be all right ultimately. But yeah, if you've been in one one job for a very long time, it's going to be. um, it is going to be quite difficult, um, John. We were, you, you. You talked about how you dreaded us talking about football. I was going to quickly ask about football, um, but, uh, particularly because our colleague David Aronovich has written in the Times today about whether uh, the fact that we're all getting overexcited about the England team means is another sign that Engl- England never thinks about the union. And it does I mean the basis if you follow the, th- the chain of thought, if England wins, does that ultimately threaten the future of the union, John? Well, I think the point David's making is the only
4: time we ever talk about England is when we're talking about the football. The rest of the time we have debates about the Constitution in Scotland and sometimes Wales and Northern Ireland, but we never really talk about Englishness and people in England It kind of comes secretary to Britishness. I think part of the problem is that people just don't enjoy talking about the Constitution when you're talking about England. I mean... David in his column, he talked about some of the ideas put forward by John Denham about replacing the House of Lords with the Union Senate, which brings together the regions and nations. And you just think most people in England, when they start to about that, their eyes are going to glaze over. I just don't think there's a massive interest down here in talking about Englishness. And I think possibly it's partly because that's kind of been, you know, devolution. People are much more interested now talking about regions Places like the northwest, with Andy Burnham and the other mayoralties, the West Midlands, rather than talking about
1: England as one
4: specific area.
1: Uh, India, what do you think? Is there, is, should we talk more about Englishness? I suppose it's a catch twenty two, isn't it? Because if we talk about it more, then it, does it end up
3: reinforcing our difference? Well, exactly, exactly. That's the problem. It's a really interesting column, but you know, England uh, makes up about eighty four percent. I think it is of the population of the UK, about ninety percent of GDP. Obviously it has a disproportionate impact on the rest of the country, which is very annoying for the rest of the country. I completely understand. There's also the problem that Scotland is uh, essentially left and England is essentially right. I think, you know, imagine if a US state made up 84% of the country. I mean, it's a sort of mad situation. And I think the more more you seek to concretise, as it were, England, the more you force other parts of the country to assert their individuality even further. And that, if you believe in a United Kingdom, does not lead you to a good place, I don't think.
1: India night and uh, John Stevens then. Of course, you can read India in the Times every Sunday. Just get yourself a digital subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash times red box. Up next, reunited at last is my chat with Sam Coates.
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
1: You're listening to The Red Box Podcast. Now, do you remember this from five years ago? How can it be five years ago? And that extraordinary moment when Boris Johnson pulled out of the leadership. It was his on to uh, uh, waiting for him on a plate, frankly, after the uh, leading the Leave campaign. He pulled out of the contest. The BBC go live to Norman Smith. Nobody's looking at Norman Smith. They're only looking at the face of my next guest, Sam Coates, who was pictured coming out of the press conference behind Norman Smith. I- a-, 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 a gog, I think it's fair to say. Uh, Sam, you were uh, deputy political of the Times. Then your Politica, uh, deputy political editor of uh, Sky News. Now, what was it like being? Because I wasn't in the room. There was so much going on in that week. You could only be in a certain number of places. What was it like in the room that moment when Boris Johnson pulled out?
2: I mean, it was incredible. But you've got to put it in that context of the, a week that basically felt like you were falling down the stairs from the Thursday night before, where we all stayed up all night to cover the Brexit. Result which obviously resulted in Britain voting to leave the European Union in the early hours, and then, and, and, and then there was just sort of David Cameron resigning on the friday and, and politics had completely broken uh, the Labour Party were nowhere, but, the, the, but there was no leadership in the Conservative Party there was no certainty about the direction of the country. And um, there were just a lot of people screaming, and 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 that wasn't just metaphorically. They were they were out there on the green, on College Green, shouting at us all. And and on the night of the Brexit referendum, I just remember the heavens opening, and you had to sort of step <laughs> over puddles as you headed towards various live points to make some cheeky extra money from your day job at the Times. And um, and it was uh, and it was in this deluge, and and that's what the, that week felt like. And. Um, the incredible sort of just emotional energy of the week spiralled on day after day until that Thursday, which was the most incredible um, day I can probably ever remember in, in in politics until the next one. And and the best way for me to prepare to do my homework for this interview was to go through the photos of the day, and I've got them all. I've got them all here. And and what happened that morning is a complete metaphor for um, <laughs> for British politics because we turned up as a sort of ravagely exhausted parliamentary uh, press group to a beautifully curated event by Theresa May, who was launching her leadership campaign in a... I can't remember which military institute it is, it just off Whitehall. Um, uh, it looked stunning. It was uh, perfect to a T. She was introduced by Chris Grayling, remember him, uh, and she gave a perfectly plausible uh, standard speech And we all listened dutifully until about three quarters of the way through when we all got messages saying that Michael Gove had stabbed Boris Johnson in the front. And we all knew, of course, that the next event in our calendar was Boris Johnson's leadership launch. So we trailed along to the St Ermin Hotel um, for this event and everybody in the Boris camp had turned off their phone. We sort of, you could intuit, you could feel what was about to happen next, but nobody said it. And the event was delayed, so we were there mainlining on coffee and more coffee and more <laughs> coffee, and eventually Boris Johnson s- stepped out. And seconds before Boris Johnson stepped out, the whole leadership team, the campaign, the Ben Wallace's, the the, uh, the room aides, all stepped out, and they said nothing, but their faces told you what was about to happen. And for the first ten minutes of Boris Johnson's speech, he didn't acknowledge it, and then finally he said the words that you just, you just played and 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 it was a stunning moment nadine torres i th- doris from memory was, was 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 tearful i think that there were um that there was very raw emotion in the in the room um and um and and then we all streamed out of the room and and veteran broadcaster norman smith was <laughs> already doing a, a live uh thingy from his camera point before and um this wasn't a moment where i thought I'm going to try and capture the second for posterity. Um, What actually went through my mind, and I've never said this publicly, was maybe I could pull a cheeky face and see what happens, (laughs) because it was a live moving picture. What I didn't anticipate was Scallywag in chief Andrew Alexander at the BBC would then screen grab that second. And his tweet went viral around the world. And even though British politics had exploded, there was nothing left. People were picking up the ruins. By
1: lunchtime, it was that picture that seemed to be <laughs> just far went, too far up most websites. It just went absolutely everywhere. Maybe it was because it sort of slightly captured the madness of it all. Um, thinking back to this week five years ago, the other thing that just sticks in my mind is the... Uh, well, let me just play it to you. You'll, I've got to gauge your reaction. It seemed ridiculous when they were doing that, and then because of all the events that we've just been discussing, Andrea Ledson ends up in the final two. Um, oh, you're taking me down a bad path, Matthew Cholly. <laughs> I know where you're. I know where you begin, and I know where you
2: want to end. So let's do it. Um, uh, Tim Lawton will be burned on my brain like an image on an HD TV that you've left on too long. Walking down the street, they were going. What was it from the Cinnamon Club where there was the launch. Um, and and of course the, that it was a launch. It was a march in support of Andrea Leadsom for leader. Andrea, of course, had left the event in a car whisked away. <laughs> um, uh, the ragtag of supporters had had, had begun walking back to. Uh, Parliament had no intention but I mean we had nothing else to do so we just sort of followed them and then somebody turned on some TV cameras and then they felt like they needed to perform so they did and wonderful organic spontaneous moment of a combination of insanity and narcissism as so often uh, we see in, um, in British politics and thank goodness for it and um, uh, and, they, and they marched on Parliament and then used their passes to get in. So. Um, and that was the beginning of Andrea Leadsom's leadership campaign. And there was this um, coalescing of vote around her. And she um, ended up putting forward a very creditable challenge to Theresa May, ending up in the last two of the Conservative leadership race, until Rachel Sylvester came along, interviewed her, um, <laughs> and
1: um, the rest is history. And explain... So it is extraordinary, we think. Five years ago this week, uh, Michael Gove, nice Boris Johnson in the back, declares him unfit to be Prime Minister. He then basically did the same thing again uh, two years ago uh, when he ran for the leadership again. How are they still working so closely in government? And I was looking back at some of the reports at the time about how... Uh, Bo- uh, Michael Gove wanted Boris Johnson to have Dominic Cummings on his leadership team. Bo- Boris Johnson said no. How is it that five years later, Dominic Cummings has been in gone and Michael Gove is essentially one of the most powerful, influential, closest allies of the man he knifed five years ago?
2: I mean, it looks to me like Michael Gove is just in a loveless marriage with Boris Johnson. Um, you've got this situation where, you know, you say they're close. I mean, do you have a ruler? Have you measured it? <laughs> I, I, I just...
1: I just obviously, obviously, I, obviously not as close as other members of the government have been with their uh, aides and advisors.
2: Um, you, in, might, it, you, might, you might say that,
1: only I'll but, get my lawyers.
2: Um, um, but, uh, but the point is, um, yes, he's got a senior job, but uh, do we really think Michael Gove is happy Do we really think that Michael, like Michael is one of these extraordinary figures that Westminster spends far too long thinking about, talking about, largely because he likes talking to journalists because he was one, including um, uh, at the Times, he was my first boss as news editor when I turned up in 2000. And, and, And he's part of the sort of media conversation, but he's only cabinet office minister. At points, he's had some influence, but it doesn't feel to me like he is running the government as some commentators often wish to present it. He, he feels like a sort of slightly sad and periphery figure, just um, dis- distant from many parliamentary colleagues who dislike his sort of... Michael's slightly more statist, uh, intervene uh, instincts when it comes to coronavirus. People in the, in the parliamentary party of the Conservative Party often, maybe wrongly say, you know, Michael just wants to impose more restrictions and things like that. So he's, he's distant from his party. He's never going to be beloved... Of Boris Johnson. Um, There are other people who are sort of ascending higher than him in politics. And you are never going to get away from something as powerful as the statement that he made on the day of 2016 that
1: we are here to celebrate. Well, we've come to the end of this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Listen to my Times radio show every Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. Uh, you can listen on DAB radio, on your smart speaker. Get the Times Radio app. You can also listen to the Redbox podcast of the Times Radio app as well. And if you want to read about the stories that we've been talking about, then you need a Times subscription to get that. Go to times.radio forward slash subscribe.